So I had just read the book by Shonda Rhimes called The Year of Yes. And I was like, I need to do that. I just need to say yes to everything and stay open to all the opportunities. And so I said no more to the 15-year life plans. Hey, it's Adam Schoenfeld. Welcome back to the Built in Seattle podcast, where Seattle's top entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders share their stories and their lessons from behind the scenes. If you like this show, you might also like my personal newsletter. Each week I share a lesson, a question, or an idea that I've picked up while learning from others. Subscribe at adaminseattle.com. I'm here with the one, the only, Jessica Eggert. Hey, Jessica, how's it going? Great. Thank you you for being here. Thanks for having me. We were just talking about this 15-year life plan that you wrote (laughs) a while ago and whether or not that is a good idea or a bad idea. Oh, it was created by 17-year-old me, just knowing that I had to escape this like small town and small town mentality I was surrounded by. I knew I needed to be able to support myself. And I, I just wanted to be successful. I didn't know what successful meant. I left my house. I left home at 17. I was living on my own. I was always working two jobs since I had been 16. I was like, I, was like, I can't do this grind. Um I need to have a plan. And so like I put this plan together and I was like, all right, I think successful, like I want to be working in a corporate job and I want to travel. Like I want them to pay for me to travel. And I wanted to be a manager by the time I was 25. I wanted to be a VP by I was 30 by the time I was 30. And I wanted to be a COO. Not, not like a CEO, but I wanted to be a COO by uh, the time I was 35. And all of those had to happen. The only thing that was passive was like, okay, do I want to get married and have kids? Was, I don't know, maybe not. But if I do decide I need to have them before 30 so I can keep up. And I was like, and I don't want, I want to be the young mom at graduation. Yeah. And you know, uh, your mom, COO company pays for travel. Company pays for travel. That was the definition of success. 17 year old you. That was it. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I was bouncing between, you know, I've been baking for a while, even did a little bit, started a baking company just to test that out. And I was like, oh, I don't like this. I actually went to school first for culinary arts. And I was like, no, this isn't my space. So I switched to economics. And, but I knew also that if I had done the full four-year college plan, then I wouldn't hit my goals on time. So I actually just went into corporate world by 19 and hid my age from everybody. And all the HR would ever know. And then hit all my goals early because- I hid a lot of who I was. Nobody ever knew. I think someone found out once I was I was managing a, a global team at that point, and someone found out I was just turning 24, and they were like, what? And I was like, if you ever say anything, <laughs> I will take you out. <laughs> what company was that at? So it was a company called Illusions. And so it was a tech company. It was doing a lot of SCADA solutions, actually. And we did really well overseas. And so I spent a lot of time. I spent a lot of time in the UK and France. So what? Okay, I have so many follow up questions on this, but I won't spend the whole podcast on it. I think the first one is how has your definition of success changed? now since you wrote that life plan at age seven i still don't know what success looks like for me and i i just know i'm happy right and i i knew i wasn't happy at that age and i wasn't happy honestly for a lot of the time during that life plan but i was like i've got this goal i'm gonna go for it i'm still figuring out what success looks like 
So are you writing a new version of that plan? I'm not. I'm very competitive. I'm very competitive with myself. And I was like, I don't, I need to hit these goals. And so it kept me, it, I put blinders on and I didn't look at other opportunities as they were coming up. I was like, I just know I need to hit this. I know that I, it's like this idea of becoming wealthy, right? Like you get all this money and you feel like it's just going to be amazing. I'm going to be set. I'm going to be on a yacht or something. I'm not wealthy, by the way. I'm just imagining this is probably what it's going to be. And I can imagine though, like once you get it, you're like, okay, what next? And so, yeah. So anyway, I, I did the plan. I have not set a new plan since then. I hit my goals all of them early, except the CEO part. Um, I ended up actually starting this company when I was 30, leg up. But when I left my previous company, I was at the company called The Riveter, which is Seattle-based as well, Amy. I had hit the majority of my goals and I didn't think I wanted to be COO. And I like I had a breakdown and, and I was like, I've hit all these goals. And I still don't feel successful. What am I supposed to do with my life? So I had this midlife crisis at 29, obviously. And... Yeah. And I went to therapy and I was like, I have not let myself live. I've made the money. I've had the kid. I have a husband. I've hit all of these goals. And I was like, in this last piece of hitting, becoming a CEO when I'm 35, I don't want that, but I don't know what I want. And so I, I really worked through it with my therapist and just writing a whole lot and realized I was like, I just need to stay open to opportunity. So I had just read the book by Shonda Rhimes called The Year of Yes. And I was like, I need to do that. I just need to say yes to everything and stay open to all the opportunities. And so I said, no more to the 15-year life plans. Okay, so you tore up, you stopped doing the plan. What would be the better alternative for your younger self to have done? And I'm torn on this, right, Jessica? Because you, in some ways, it sounds like the plan probably helped you a lot because you were a manager at 24. You had like, you skipped college and still got successful. You were there working at the Riveter, got into the Seattle tech community. So there was some good that came from it. But I'm wondering, like, yeah, there's obviously some trade offs as well, based on what you were saying. But what would be the, the better alternative? Yeah, I think that really is it, right? It's a great question. I don't think about what I would have done differently often, because I can't go back and change it for myself. I would say do nothing different. I learned so much. It was really hard for others. I have six siblings and for them, I tell them to just embrace, have this idea of where they want to go and just know that it's going to change. And I also tell them to just think about their values. Who do you want to be? Who do you not want to be in this world? And then stick to those and then things just will fall into place. How has that experience mapped to the way you approach building leg up? Did you come in with, hey, I have this really prescribed business plan and we're going to do steps one through six and take over the world? Or has you already learned the lesson from your personal life and taken this kind of a little bit more open approach to how you're building the the company from the the early Mm -hmm. stage? Yeah, leg up was definitely not in the plan. And I didn't set out to start a startup. I just knew that <laughs> my husband and I were were pregnant or just gotten pregnant with our our daughter, our second daughter. She's she's almost two now. We had just pregnant and we were like, oh crap, like we haven't signed up for wait lists. We've got to start pulling out the checkbook and calling all, all the programs and joining all the wait lists. And I hate 
repeating things. I hate having to do things the same uh, over and over again, especially when it's manual. And then I was like, we had just gotten our son into kindergarten. I was like, I thought I was done with this. This is just <laughs> like, for example, we just bought a house, our first house. And oh my God, if I do this again, like this had better changed. It was so manual and <laughs> so difficult. And if it hasn't, that'll probably be my next startup. But I had set out to, I just want to make this easier for myself. Where are all the programs? I'm going to write them out. I put it in an Airtable spreadsheet. And it was like, what are the costs? And then I just started growing. And I was like, what else is out there? I found out that we had just put my son through pre-K and we could have saved $1,000 a month if we had just gone to a program that was close by. Mm. I didn't know that because I didn't know this program existed. So I just pulled together an Airtable spreadsheet, started building on it, shared it in a Facebook group. And, and I embedded it in like a Squarespace website. And within three days, we had a thousand families who had come through a thousand unique hits on the website. And we had providers reaching out to us saying, I want to be on this spreadsheet, us being me. And so I had gotten a friend together who was at the Riveter with me before my best friend, Jonna. And I was like, I think we should probably do something. I don't know what it is, but we could easily just build like a this is super naive, but like we could easily just build a Yelp for childcare, just a spreadsheet, something where people can go and find mm-hmm. programs. Yeah. And now I'm diving into the story, but <laughs> no, this is perfect. I, I love this story. And, yeah. but I want to know, okay, you go and you start tinkering, right. To solve your own problem. Cause I've noticed this of the 45 or 50 interviews I've had on this show. Sometimes it's very bottom up. Like you're talking about, I solve my own problem. And sometimes it's very top down convoy. They went and looked at the the mega trends in the trucking industry and how mobile devices were being deployed into the hands of more people. So did you have any inkling? Did you have any notion that, hey, like I'm going to invest in making this Airtable and putting on the Squarespace site, that might be a business. Did you have any hope or design? Was there any design, I guess, at that that point? Yeah, no, I just winged it. And I was, I was like, I love Airtable. I love building websites. I love Airtable too. Amazing. <laughs> I'm obsessed with Airtable. I could definitely promote them all day. I had an inkling that it could be a business. Okay. I wasn't sure that I wanted it to be, but I wanted to test it because I was between things. I wasn't sure. I didn't want to go and work for somebody else, but I wasn't sure that I wanted to start my own thing too. And I had some time and I was pregnant and I was like, let's see what this could be. If anything, at least it'll help some families not have to go through what I did and mm. maybe be able to find childcare. Okay. And did you write that down, those assumptions of like, these are the range of outcomes? Like on one hand, this becomes a billion dollar company. On the other hand, it just helps me and three friends. Or how how structured were you at that point of kind of saying, okay, let me test this? Or was it very just loose and I'm going to make an air table? I said, all right, I got it together with my, my friend, Jonna. And, and I was like, I think this could be something. I don't know if I want it to be. I'm just going to build out like a one page business plan, right? Like my husband okay. was, at, was at Amazon up until about a month ago. And he's, if you can explain it in a one pager, you're fine. So I was like, let me just build this one pager. All right, this could be something. Let's test it. See if we can build the Yelp for childcare. And so I said, by the summer, we actually decided to start with summer camps and not childcare programs because summer camps were so hot, right? And, I, and yeah. I also needed to find summer camp for my son. <laughs> so it's really <laughs> selfish still. Yeah. And I said, by the summer, I want to be able to allow at least 100 families into our system and say, and look for summer camp, right? And want them to be able to find some activities. So I pulled together like a scrappy crew 
of friends and I said, let's do this nights and weekends. I'm going to spend all my days working on this. And by June, we launched, you know, it, was, it was within three months. We had stood up this really basic kind of search platform, had 1,200 summer camp activities on the platform. I convinced a ridiculous amount of people to put their their camps on here and the, prov- the programs were excited. And then we tested it and I was like, okay, cool. This could be something. It was exciting. It had our name on it. It had this, this name my husband and I come, had come up with, leg up. And then it failed. Okay. So talk about that. You What was the dip? Because you had this kind of, you had the up, right? The first up of, whoa, people want my air table. Mm-hmm. And then you said it failed. So what was the dip or how low was that that first low? <laughs> it was pretty low. I was riding this high of, okay, this air table has turned into a, something that like I can see it. It was exciting. Yeah. I had programs signing up. I was like, I can sell. I didn't know I was a salesperson, but I can sell. <laughs> it, it's all working out. June hits. We get people in there. We start asking families how they liked the experience. And every single one of them said, this sucked, right? This didn't help me at all. And I was just, I was devastated, but, and I was like, okay, let's tweak a few things right here. Like, like, what do we need to do to make it better? Is are the website links not working? What we were, I was trying to figure out why it wasn't working. I was talking to the parents and they were like, that's great. You told me where they are, but I can't enroll. I still have to go and do put my credit card all over the place, all over the internet. I still had to fill out forms and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not solving the right problem. And then that's when it that's when it really hit me. And then I was having my daughter in August. So I had this downtime between July and August. So we kept it up there, kept talking to parents. At the same time, a bunch of parents started emailing me and saying, hey, can you just help me find childcare for my youngest? I'll mm-hmm. pay you. And I was like, oh, this could be something too. I've got a little time till my daughter's born. And so I just started looking for childcare programs there. And started experiencing and started thinking about what programs we're dealing with right? and actually got to talk to a lot of programs. And they started letting me in the door because I was helping other families enroll. Um, enroll. And I took a break. I was still at this low. I was like, I don't know if this is something. I had my daughter. I was focused on parenting. Three weeks after I had her, we flew down. I flew her down to San Francisco. We did this talk at Tech Inclusion Con with Leslie Feinzak. We've had both of our babies there on stage. It was fun. And I got to, I started talking to a bunch of founders and I was like, I'm really excited about this. I think this could really, I think this could be something. And I got back and, and started working with childcare programs behind the scenes. So we hit this dip. And I still sure wasn't sure what it was, but I knew that, you know, I was in this, I was in the true discovery phase. I was, I was getting closer to what I thought it could be. And so you talked to customers, you got this insight about, oh, we're solving the wrong problem. We need to solve enrollment, not just listing the options. But how'd you go from there to, all right, that's going to be the, the core part of the business. Yeah. What was, what did that look like? When I got behind the scenes and started working with the childcare programs, I realized that if we can manage their enrollment for them, like they're, oh my gosh, the majority of small childcare programs out there are small businesses, right? Mm-hmm. So over 90% of them are small business, mom and pop own, may, might own a few pro, few locations. But when I was on site with these programs, they were getting parent inquiries left and right. They're managing this with spreadsheets and sticky notes. Like I, I joke with programs, like childcare industry could stand up the sticky note industry. 
They're just like everywhere. It's so unorganized. But they were also dealing with staffing issues and licensing. And it's a heavily regulated space. And I was like, you guys don't even have time to manage these parent inquiries. At the same time, you have openings. So this, it was just a very broken system behind the scenes. And I realized if we could just manage it for them, we can have this insight that nobody in the industry has, not even state agencies or federal agencies. We could really have this data that we need to help parents be able to enroll and, and get these spots. Got you. So I'm always interested in these kind of marketplace businesses of do you focus on the supply or the demand side first? How did you sort that out in your category? Yeah, we got very lucky where we realized that the demand was coming into the supply no matter what. And the parents were coming to programs. We just had to help them manage it. And if we could do that, we can have the supply and demand coming through our system at this at the very early stages without us having to go after the demand. Got it. So the providers actually brought the demand to some extent. Yeah. If a restaurant puts the toast payment thing on their site or something of that nature. Exactly. How do we start up? We started off as this really light SaaS tool right? For childcare mm. programs and it's usage based. So we give it to our childcare programs for free because we also realize from being inside these organizations that they are running on slim margins and they don't have the ability to pay. And we wanted the density. Right? We wanted to get as many programs using us as possible. So that way we can give as many options to parents as possible. Got it. And so now as you are in the next phase of the business, how do you balance the tension about who is your customer and how do you think through that and how do you create focus around that, those two sides? Yeah. And that's, that was something that took a little bit of time to understand or we really wanted to help parents be able to stay in the workforce. We knew that over 2 million parents end up making a career sacrifice, whether that's leaving the workforce, turning down job promotions, not going on that trip because find, they couldn't find childcare. And so we wanted to help parents be able to stay in the workforce, but really our, our main customer is the childcare program. Because if we can get them using our tools, we could, and what we're doing right now, power the childcare industry so we can make life a lot easier for parents, but make sure that it continues to run smoothly and just be the backbone um, of these programs. So our childcare providers are our, our main customer. What's, how do you, so we were talking about category creation, category design a little bit before. How do you think about what category you're in? And is there a category emerging here around these pain points? There's, so I think there's two different types of categories that I think of. There's the, where VCs want to put us, right? Are you ed tech? I think childcare is becoming a little bit more of an industry now. I've seen even some firms put, okay, we invest in childcare category. So I put ourselves in childcare, but I'll say ed tech or whatever we need. I also will say employee benefits because that's really where we want to go. We want to help the employers be able to help their employees find care. It's something that I can never find uh, running ops for our tech companies. I can never find a childcare benefit that was that would work for our employees. Nothing that wasn't crazy expensive or nanny care, which I just didn't trust the nanny care solutions. Um, so, so sometimes we'll put ourselves in that court category, but with childcare programs, that's where we really care, where we're really focused on that category creation, because for so long, they've been only working with something called childcare management software, CCMS tools, which help them manage everything 
that has that wraps around compliance. So from parents coming in and paying monthly tuition to parent communications, staff management, program management, all of that. And so they're so used to this technology. And then we were coming in and saying, we're not that, right? We actually start before you even need a child care management software for that family. Um, but then to explain that, we're a light CRM, but some of these small business owners, they didn't know what a CRM was. And so we're really having to create our own category and own a name that we've created called the Enrollment Success Platform, really own that to help the child care providers be able to understand, okay, what's the difference between you and CCMS, what I don't want to pay for and what I, like I, what I don't feel I need. It, it reminds me vaguely, it's not an exact parallel, but to what mind body was able to do in the, the spa and yoga and Pilates kind of space. I don't know if that's what they'd want to call it, but yeah, they seem yeah. to have really figured that out for that, that vertical. I agree. I agree. That's very cool. It's, it's just always surprising when you go into these industries where they don't have the tech that we're maybe used to being in this world. How did the, this insight about companies offering the benefit come about? And like when in the evolution of kind of validating the market, did you figure out, oh, hey, we can actually go to companies and help them offer this as an employee benefit, which seems very timely now in the world as the talent war is like raging like crazy and that people are looking at all different types of benefits. Yeah. So that comes definitely from the personal experience of being in HR, having a lot of HR friends as well, people who see HROs or VPs of people and they're like, how do we help parents? And usually the idea is let's help pay for tuition. And especially in Seattle, that's not possible. Often for, for employers, when infant care is 3000 to $3,500 a month, that $2,500 a year stipend that you might give to employees, cool, that's gone <laughs> three-fourths of the month, three-fourths of the way through the month. So I knew, I knew from experience that there needed to be something out there to that employers could offer to their parents, their working parent employees. But really, it's the search and enrollment piece, right? If you can't find care, you don't even have to worry about being able to afford it because you're just, you're not even going to get into a program. And so we realized if we could help these employers be able to keep their employees in the workforce, there's, they could find other ways to be able to help with the, the payment and the tuition later down the road. So, now, so coming from experience, definitely the second thing was that we didn't want to charge again. We didn't want to charge the providers. It's usage-based. We make money with the providers. They adjust fees and and we take a percentage of it, whatever whatever they get enrolled. And because we didn't want to charge providers, we knew we would never be profitable if we continued this way. Also, I didn't want to be a consumer-based. I wanted to do this one-to-many approach. I love that kind of approach just in life in general when I'm supporting anything that I do. And we even have our own partnerships to help us get programs and then thought if we could help employers be able to help their employees, we can just go after one main customer and still end up helping those parents. Can you talk a little bit more about the one-to-many principle and like how that maps in your life? I think I see it in, in business, how you're getting so much leverage from one company and then you're serving all these consumers. But where does that map into your, your life more broadly? Yeah. Speaking one-to-one exhausts me, honestly, when I'm working with people. If I can create a solution that works for many people, right? Like it, it, this idea of doing things manually is can is just exhausting to me, honestly. And it drains me and I know that. And so my approach to work, I, I want to create 
a solution, one solution that can work for many people at once and still solve that problem that, that keeps them, especially women and people of color, keeps them from moving forward in their career or business uh, career or in their personal life. But I can't listen to every single person's story. And not that I don't love people, I, I just know myself. And so it, it definitely applies to business too. When I was doing a little bit of HR work, doing an HR specialist didn't work for me. But if I could create a system and create teams, I, I did much better. I was just a much more efficient employee when I had when I had team members who were doing that one-to-one and I could just go and coach one person who would then be able to support a lot of other people. So yeah, so we apply it in the business as well. It just makes a lot of financial sense for us, honestly, but it also makes me feel like, okay, we can go out and help a lot of people. I can make a big impact in the world. And I bet you that's really it. If I ever like actually stop to think about it, I want to make a big impact. People don't have to know my name, but I want to know that I was able to help thousands or millions of people and yeah, just make a difference in the world. And for me, that feels like a one-to-many kind of solution. Were you do, was it a lot of one-to-one sort of in the early days and now you're figuring out how to make it one-to-many? So have you, did you feel the pain of that uh, at first or how did you, how did this become kind of a principle of yours? Yeah, that was still a lot of one-to-one, right? And I love it and I don't mind it because I know that we're working towards that one-to-many. I know that if I got stuck in this one-to-one, I feel like I wouldn't grow and I wouldn't be able to become successful. And so that's where it really can lock me. I think it's not just the the exhaustion of that one-to-one conversation. I think it's the idea that like if I get stuck here, like I'll never be able to hit this like goal of success. I and yeah, like with leg up. I did a lot of one-to-one. I still do sales. I like, I'm doing demos constantly. We're still early stage. I love been there. it. I've been there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I know I also need to pull back. We're hiring people so I can pull back, but the one-to-one will continue until we get it right. And until we can, we have created a solution where we can go and scale and help as many people as we really want to. What are you being most intentional about? as you build the culture, I know you've been in big companies and then you've been in other startups. So what sort of core the leg up culture is you get to design it from zero? Yeah. Number one, making sure our team is very diverse from the beginning. And so diverse from all different aspects. We, it's just easier to start. If you can just create this diverse team from the beginning, they'll go on and they'll hire diverse people. But I think this really stems from our values, being making sure that we're a values-driven company. I never like to say culture fit. And in my teams, I would always tell the company, like, we're not doing culture fit. We're saying values fit. Because what does culture actually mean? We want to make sure that everybody coming into our team recognizes our values and feels them and then brings them into their day-to-day, whether they're building the products, whether they're talking to customers, whether they're writing an FAQ. And so for us, one of our values is um, see and represent. And so we know that we are working with a very diverse group, right? The majority of our business, our customers are women and people of color, but they're serving people who can pay through $3,200 a month for Indian care and also people who are required to have subsidy care. They won't take that promotion because if they make even a dollar more an hour, they won't be able to afford childcare. They won't be able to keep that government subsidy. So we're serving this really diverse base. And we're making sure that our team really thinks about that. And, and they are as diverse as our customers are. You'll Even with our team, not a lot of them come from the tech world. A lot of them come from childcare and have just gained other skill sets. 
since they've been in the childcare space. But yeah, they're just incredibly diverse. And yeah, those are the two two things that we're really thinking about and being intentional about as we're building this company, making sure it's diverse and making sure that everybody knows our values and they are really just living them every single day. What have you done that's worked well to turn that from a one-to-one to one-to-many, as you said, or to make a system out of that? Because I think a lot of founders get stuck on that in terms of they might want diversity at the start, but how do you how do you make it? It's not a simple thing, right? It's not. We're... We, I'm not sure when we'll hit this one-to-many kind of approach around the hiring. I have this, it's not like this big massive theory, but I have this theory that if we can just make sure that our core team is diverse and really understands our values, like every single month we'll have a conversation about um, a new product or even a new feature we're building or somebody that we're hiring and we talk about our values. Does this really align with all of our values? We have some tough conversations as a team. We're a team of 10 right now and we'll all get on the call and some and they can be really tough and we learn a lot of things and sometimes we say the wrong things. But if I have this, I, this theory that if we can do this with the core group, then when we step away, Right. As we start to grow, that will permeate through the rest of through the company, right? As they're hiring for new employees, they're going to make sure that their team is values aligned, right? With the company and, and is diverse in a way that represents our customer. Yeah. So if you can get that core group, right, then the theory is it'll, you'll be strong there. And, and then as it grows, it'll naturally draw in the right kind of people and, and they'll maintain the diversity that you want, the values you want. Yeah. That totally makes sense. But it's still hard. And we're hiring engineers. And I remember the first time we went out to hire our first engineer, we got over 150 applications and only five of them were women. And I was like, what are we doing wrong? Yeah. And so we still had to go out and make sure that we were, we tried as hard as we could and make sure that we were getting a diverse group of candidates applying. When that happened, you actually, you were in, you, you made a choice to go out and take this second step. You didn't just, okay, lend our search for, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Was that a hard conversation to have or was everybody like, no, obviously that's what we need. I think in a way it is hard because people were like, well, we have fantastic candidates in front of right. us. And you have a hundred and what was it? 150 candidates. Over so. 150. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. And a lot of them really, truly love what we were doing. A lot of them were like, that's cool. I just want to be like the first engineer somewhere. But a lot of them really cared about this mission. Yeah, it was difficult because it was like, we have a lot of candidates, but we need to make sure that we have a diverse group of candidates that we're thinking about different perspectives. And yeah, it was tough when we went to Facebook groups and I went to virtual events and I was doing everything everywhere I could to find, to find more women candidates. You were in big companies, then you were in, we're at the Riveter in a growing startup. What's been the most surprising as you've gotten to be a founder versus working in a startup? Mm. not being a founder. Yep. Most surprising. I remember working for the Riveter and watching Amy work. And I was like, just watching her exhaust me sometimes (laughs) because she could do so much with four kids. And I swear, I don't know if she ever slept. And I remember looking at her and I was like, I don't know that I could ever do that. Now building something of my own, I can live, I can only do like three days of like maybe four hours of sleep at night and before I need my seven, eight hours. But there's just this drive that you have as the founder. And Amy used to say that she used to say often, no, it's hard because no one's ever going to feel the way about the river that I do. Okay. And I was like, what are you talking about? I love the river. Like we, we all love what we were doing, this mission that we were showing up for. But as a founder myself, I just know nobody works 
the way I do because they, it's not, and I don't, <laughs> and I'm not, um, I guess I'm trying to watch my words because I love how much my team cares about our mission and how hard they work. They work so hard, but also they'll never feel this connection. They can walk away at any point. And, and I think it, it could not kill me, but like damage me a lot if I walked away from this mission and what we were building. And so that's what really drives me. And I, I just don't think you feel that unless you're the founder, one of the founders. It makes sense. You have, people have a connection to the mission and they have skin in the game and all that stuff, but there's a certain, maybe another level or gear that you experience as a founder. All right, Jessica, let's uh, go to the supersonic six. This is the rapid fire round. Okay. Number one, how much coffee do you? Five, six cups a day. It's bad. That's strong. It's bad. (laughs) Number two, what's one... Seattle company that you're following or studying? I actually really, you mentioned Convoy earlier. I love studying Convoy and I can listen to all of his podcasts all the time. Yeah. Their rapid growth. I'm not sure that we need to do that, but just the, what they've learned from that rapid growth is fan is fascinating. We actually have one of their um, early employees as one of our advisors. So. Awesome. And for people who are interested, Grant Goodell was episode 30 on this podcast. So go back and listen to him. That was a a great episode. Number three, who's one Seattle person that you're following or learning from right now? Yeah, I love learning from Rebecca and just her product mindset too. Uh, Rebecca, sorry, Rebecca Bastian. Yeah, Seattle. And another person I follow is Ben Gilbert over from PSL. He and I did some work together at Global Shaper, the for Global Shapers in Seattle. And I just love listening to to his podcast and also just seeing like how much he's grown in in the past like I don't know six years since we've known each other. He's yeah, he's a cool person to listen to and to learn from. That, a, a fantastic podcast for people listening who don't subscribe to Acquired. It's well worth it. They they really go deep on some deals and great companies. Really fun one. Yeah. Number four, what's the one thing that Seattle needs to improve as a startup hub? Early stage investors. Yeah. Especially ones I think around consumer. I worry that Seattle will stay a cloud company for too long. And I think that we have some really fantastic founders out there doing consumer-based companies and not a lot of support out there for them. Number five, what's one piece of advice you'd give your 20-year-old? Mm, relax. As you were penning the plan, the, the, the 15-year plan. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. Number six, the last one is, what can this community do to help you? Is there something you want listeners to go take a look at? Job openings, events, anything that you'd like yeah. people to go do after hearing this? Yep. We're hiring a full stack engineer with more front end experience right now. But yeah, if you have ideas around childcare, really just reach out to me at, at Jessica at legup.care. And I, I love learning from other people. And this is a space that has not had a lot of innovation for a while. And so I, I just, I love getting other people's perspectives when they're coming from different industries. I haven't had enough coffee chats in a while. Well, with six cups a day, you have a lot of opportunities. I know well. I do. I really do. <laughs> Two kids, Adam. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah. Jessica, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, it's Adam again. Quick note before you go. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show as much as I am enjoying making it. 
If you do like it, please leave a rating or a review. That would help other people find it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you have any feedback, send me an email, adamseattlepodcast at gmail.com. No underscores, no periods, just adamseattlepodcast at gmail.com.